Hello, it's Matt Weaver with BibleTruthProject.com here with another exciting episode where we will dig into uh, some more biblical prophecy and discuss one of the more um, animate, uh, use those words, animate sections or not controversial maybe, but definitely one of the clearest sections of biblical apocalypticism that you will see in the Bible, and that is um, known as the Gog-Magog War. Now, <clears throat> There's a lot of different opinions surrounding Gog-Magog War. In tradition, the Gog-Magog War in Judaism is seen as the final conflict before uh, God is going to restore the world, that kind of thing. Uh, in Islam, it's basically seen as the final conflict before judgment, kind of the same thing as the Jewish belief and Christian belief. Gog-Magog War kind of follows suit, uh, but there's some debate, unlike the other uh, religions, there's more debate as to the, the timing of the Gog-Magog War because of, um, because of Revelation 20. And I'll just say this at the preface here, that, that you know, th this is not, um, how do I say this, isn't that one person knows the truth, that I know the truth, and that I'm the only person that knows the truth. Um, there's different ideas out there, and I guess it's good to be aware of them, but um, it, it, it's definitely interesting. So in the chronology of the end times, we know there's two major events. Obviously, Jesus comes back, and then and there's a conflict at that time, and Jesus warns about that in the Olivet Discourse. And then you have another incidence of, of war in Revelation where it describes um, really a lot of nations coming down against the city of God, um, yeah, uh, what is it called? Adonijah is there. Is it Yahweh Shema or whatever it's called uh, in Hebrew? And basically, you know, again surrounds the city of, of God and, and they're destroyed. So there's kind of two schools of thought here. The one school of thought is that Gog Magog is basically synonymous with Armageddon, that it's the same battle. Uh, and then it, Ezekiel 38 and 39 describe that battle, as does Revelation when it talks about Armageddon. So that's rule number one, or view number one. View number two is that um, following, uh, there's first an Armageddon, which is a battle that's kind of like Gog-Magog, but that the real Gog-Magog will take place after the thousand years, which follows the chronology of Revelation. So really what you have is a traditional interpretation. And when I say traditional, I mean, you know, really early um, Jewish interpretation of Gog Magog versus a um, versus John's interpretation in Revelation 20. And I'm just going to read through these sections really quick. So uh, Armageddon happens... Let's just see here. With the rider on the white horse. Let me just see if I can find it here. And basically, I'm going to read from uh, Revelation 19 on. This is going to give you the context of um, basically what is known as Armageddon. Then I saw our, what is known as Armageddon, what some people also call um, Gog Magog. Then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. The one riding on it is called Faithful and True, and he judges and makes war in righteousness. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and many royal crowns are on his head. He has a name written that no one knows except himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, clothed in fine linen, went white and clean, were, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron. And he treads the winepress of the furious wrath of the Lord of hosts. On his robe and on his, hot, on his thigh he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. I saw a single angel standing in the sun, and with a loud voice he cried to all the birds flying high into the sky, Come, gather for the great banquet of God. To eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of generals and the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and those riding on them, the flesh of men, both free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beasts and the kings of the earth and their armies gather together to make war against the one, and here's an important distinction, against the one who sat on the horse 
and against his army. Then the beast was captured, and along with him the false prophet who had performed the signs before them, which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast, as well as those who had worshipped his image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of burning with brimstone. The rest were killed with the sword coming out of the mouth of the one riding on the horse, and all the birds gorged themselves with their flesh. So here you basically hear um, this con a, a conflict in which Jesus intervenes, and it's the armies of you know the enemy coming together to fight against the uh, against this one, I guess you would say, and that's one view of the conflict. And the other view is um, when you skip take back two chapters in, in uh, sixteen, uh, Revelation sixteen, you'll see the seven bowls of wrath which uh, many people believe, and I believe it's correct, that God, this is the final pouring out of his wrath when he's coming back, um, basically to avenge the blood of the, of the saints and the prophets. And uh, saints, again, uh, in, in traditional view, are the sanctified ones, not saints in the, in the sense of the, what the Roman Catholics have created as saints. So not Christian heroes, if you will, as much as... Um, just the righteous ones, okay? The righteous, the righteous ones of the earth. And um, basically pours out all sorts of wrath. And at the end of that pouring out of wrath, then the spirits gathered the kings to the place in Hebrew called Har Megiddo. It's actually Har Megadon, and it can be translated. Some people translate it Megiddo. Some people translate it Mega uh, Moed, just because of uh, the vowel sets, I guess. So there's some controversy there. But at the end of the day, the culmination of the pouring out of the bowls of wrath is what gathers um, together the kings ultimately into a place that is called Harmagadon in, in the Greek. You can translate Magadon as Megiddo, even though never in Scripture is it really referred to as Har Megiddo. It's referred to as the Valley of Megiddo. And the other option is, um, is Moed, which is the Moedim, which is the feast or the appointed times, or you could call it assemblies. Um, Moed is the singular, so the place of assembly. You, could, you, could, you can interpret it that way. And basically gathered the kings to the place in Hebrew called the Mount of, Mas of Assembly, which is Jerusalem. So those are two different ways you can look at that. Anyway, after that, after they are gathered is when the seventh angel is blowing the trumpet, which is the final trumpet. And it says really quickly in sequence that that is what happens. And there's enormous hail and falls from heaven and all of that good stuff. So that takes place in the seventh bull. Um, which is, let me see here, from the throne it is done. There were flashes and lightnings, rumbles, clashes of thunder, a great earthquake, such as never happened since mankind has been seen on earth. So mighty is the quake. Now, it's it, it, you have some connections here with the Ezekiel story. So the enormous hail, that is a connection. Um, but hail also, in this context, this is actually um, speaking of Armageddon. So Armageddon... Okay, whatever that means, Harmageddon, that conflict of Harmageddon or Mount of Assembly, you know, there's hail there. Well, that's the same kind of language that you get with Ezekiel's Gog Magog. Um, so there might be some truth in the fact that you're dealing with two very similar conflicts, but you've got different leaders involved. So in Revelation 20, an interesting happened. An interesting thing happens. So just after 19, when you read about the rider on the white horse, again, kind of reiterating what's happening with that conflict, uh, then you see the angel coming down from heaven, holding his hand to the key of the abyss and a great chain, and he seizes the dragon, the ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and he binds him for a thousand years. And uh, interestingly enough, the beast and the false prophet are locked away first and then you see this taking place so the beast and the false prophet run the first um run the first battle okay the second one in revelation 20 verse 7 it then says when the thousand years are ended satan shall be released from his prison and he shall come out to deceive the nations at the four corners of the earth now here's the important thing to remember it's still referring to nations so nations will still exist in this state. So it is possible. It's not a unified nation. There are nations in the millennium. So it's still possible to deceive 
nations, the four corners of the earth. And then he says, Gog and Magog, to gather them for the battle. So Gog and Magog. So Gog being the leader and Magog being the, the whole accompaniment, if you will. So Gog and Magog, to gather them for the battle. That seems fairly straightforward, that he will come out to see the nations at the four corners and Gog and Magog to gather them for battle. Their numbers like the sand of the sea. And they came up on the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints. So we're again dealing with the surrounding of, of the city of God. This time it's a different city. It's Yahweh. I think it's Yahweh Shema or something like that. It's uh, Adonai is there, according to Ezekiel. And that is, um, that is again, that is a city that will be surrounded. But fire fell from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are too. So it's interesting that immediately he, he refers to the beast and the false prophet and the devil being thrown in there with them. And then immediately after that is the judgment. So you have judgment immediately after the fall uh, of Satan. So now let's just go to Ezekiel's situation here. Uh, let me see here. Ezekiel 38. And the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, set your face toward Gog of the land of Magog. So there it gives you the context. So Gog is a king, and he is of the land of Magog. Chief prince of Meshach and Tubal, and prophesy against him, saying, Excuse me, let me just find this again. And say, Thus saith the Lord, Behold, I am against you, Gog, chief prince of Meshach and Tubal. I will turn you about and put hooks into your jaws. I will bring you out with all your army, horses and horsemen, all of them splendidly dressed, a vast assembly with breastplate and shield, all of them wielding swords. Starting in verse 5, With them will be Persia, Cush, Put, all of them with shield and helmet, Gomer and all his troops, the house of Tagarma, from the extreme north and all his troops, many peoples with you. Be prepared, prepare yourself, you and all your company gather around you. Be a guard for them. Now, here's the thing. <clears throat> I'm going to stop just for briefly because we actually um, we have a Bible study group and we put these, um, I guess, movements and actions or whatever you want to call them on a, you know, basically overlaid it on a map. So something I learned a long time ago from... Uh, um, professor, oh, what's his name now? Stephen Lancaster and uh, Jim Munson is that it is very wise that when the Bible is giving you geographical details to take a map and to chart it out, draw it out. So you get a visual. And it's been one of the more uh, important things that I've ever done. And I think it's hugely important if you're going to be using uh, this type of information and trying to figure out what's going on. So if you chart it out, it's actually quite interesting what happens. And we did this for Daniel's description. We did this for Ezekiel's description. And what you come up with um, is a kind of a different situation. So if you're looking, and I'm not going to be able to show you a picture, obviously, it's visual. But what, from what you see is that Cush is, uh, is down in Egypt or um, Ethiopia, but it's down from that south. Libya is North Africa. And um, from the extreme north, Gog, Magog, that's from the north. Gomer is over uh, kind of the Black Sea area. And Persia is obviously to the east. So from all sides, you basically have people converging. That's the picture that Ezekiel gives, okay? So if we're looking at this, I'm just going to go through the acts that we have here. We basically separated all the acts uh, that are spoken of in Ezekiel 38, and then we'll read through it. So Gog is from Magog. He comes and he gathers the people with him. So the first act is um, basically many peoples will join him. And that's from Gomer, uh, the Gomer uh, Persia, Libya, and Cush. And he's up from Turkey probably, could be further up, but in those regions. And uh, the second act is God will bring him out and his people. So this is not just him, but he'll have people join him first. Secondly, God will bring him out. The third thing that we'll see happen is that they will come against restored Israel like a storm and be like a cloud covering the land. This is important note. 
Israel will be restored at this point. This is not a downtrodden, um, how would you say it? This, there, it's a safe time for Israel. It's not a time of distress. It's not a time of uh, difficulty according to this. Okay, They will be unwalled villages. It's talking about safety and all that good stuff, peace and safety. Uh, you don't really pick up distress. So that's an important distinction, I believe, between Gog Magog happening before versus after. Uh, but basically, they'll come against a restored Israel like a storm and be like a cloud covering the land. Act number four is uh, the enemy will devise an evil plan to go against the land without defense to plunder it. This is talking about verse 10. Verse 11, which is Act 5, God will vindicate his holiness and make himself known to the nations through this. So this is the defining conflict in which God will make himself holy uh, or vindicate himself and his holiness and his name. After this, no more uh, defiling of his name will take place. And God will be angry, and he will shake the world and rain down torrential range, fire, hailstones, and brimstone. So this is the different, this is kind of description. We'll read through this so you understand. Be prepared, prepare yourself, and you and all your company gathered around you, be on guard for them. After many days, you will be summoned in the latter years. You will come against the land that has been brought back from the sword and regathered from many peoples on the mountains of Israel, which had been in continual waste. But they were brought out from the peoples when all of them were dwelling securely. Now, this is where it's important to make a distinction. So if you read the earlier chapters of Ezekiel, you hear about Israel coming forth out of the nations. And Jesus, in his uh, dialogues or in his parables, talks about the dividing of the nations, the sheep from the goats. Personally, as I understand prophecy, that's describing taking Israel out of the nations, which is what is mirrored here. So, But they were brought out from the peoples. okay, And then it's describing after that, when all of them are dwelling securely. Okay, so it's basically, this is they're going to be brought out of the peoples and they're going to dwell securely. This is, in my opinion, speaking of when Jesus comes back, if you will, and um, restores Israel to its proper place. Okay, the modern state of Israel is not the fulfillment of that. Those who view uh, the Islamic Antichrist theory typically will say, uh, who are not for a how would you say, pro-anti-Messiah uh, kind of a view, um, will basically say, well, this is modern Israel. This is describing modern Israel. But it's not really describing that, not based upon what I understand it. But basically, this will take place um, after that Israel is restored, regathered from many peoples, and uh, it, which had been a continual waste, which is true. If you look at the wars, it was just continually wasted. But they were brought out from the peoples whom all of them are dwelling, when all of them are dwelling securely. Now, some would say that's the modern state. I personally think that is speaking of the gathering at the return of Yeshua. Important distinction, because that is actually where the dividing line happens. Is this talking about um, at Jesus' return, or is this talking about later? This clause is, is an important deviation. So from there, you'll say, you will come up and you will come out like a storm. You'll be like a cloud covering the land and all your troops and many peoples with you. So it describes a very cloudy, just a full of people kind of scenario. Verse 10 says, Thus saith the Lord, I will come to pass it in that day that things will come into your heart and you will devise an evil plan. So in that day, the day of um, Israel being back in the land and them dwelling securely, then it'll come to pass it will devise an evil plan. That's a very different kind of a picture than what we get of the in Daniel when it talks about the uproar and the roar and, and the war and the tribulation happening just before the final conflict. So this is a very different picture, okay, uh, in some ways. I think that's important. And you will say, I will go up against the land of unwalled villages. I will fall upon the quiet people who live securely. Again, talking about peace, talking about security, and they're living without walls, no bars, no gates. So it's talking about they're not in fear. This is not really describing the situation of, um, if according to Daniel, this is not really describing the same situation 
is what Daniel is saying before the coming of the Lord. So that's an important distinction as well. In order to see spoil, verse 12, in order to see spoil and carry off plunder, to turn your hand against the waste places now inhabited, and against the people gathered from nations who have been acquired, who have been acquiring livestock and property, who live in the center of the world. So again, we say against the people gathered from the nations. So it's not just, and again, is this modern Israel or is this Messiah's Israel? Okay, I believe it is Messiah's Israel, not modern Israel. Uh, Sheba, Dedan, and the merchants of Tarshish, with all its young lions, will say to you, Have you come to see spoil? Have you assembled your company to plunder, to carry away silver and gold, to take away livestock and property, to make off with immense spoils? So it's talking about immense prosperity leading up to this. Therefore, son of men, prophesy, say to God, Thus saith the Lord, In that day when my people in Israel dwell safely, you will not know. Will you not know? You will come from your place out of the extreme north, you and many peoples with you, all of them riding on horses, a great company and a mighty army. So it describes them actually riding horses. This is um, a little bit different than probably the situation coming up to the Lord's return, but I could be wrong. You'll come up against my people Israel like a cloud covering the land. It will happen in the last days. Okay, so some people say, well, since it says last days, that has to be a connection to the last days when before Jesus comes back. But there are kind of like two sets of last days going on. I'll bring you against my land so that the nations may know me when I am sanctified through you, Gog, before their eyes. Thus saith the Lord, are you the one that... Uh, that I spoke about in former times through my servants, the prophets of Israel, who prophesied in those days for many years that I would bring you against them. In that day when Gog comes against the land of Israel, my fury will rise up in my nostrils, in my jealousy, and my fire of my wrath I have spoken. Surely in that day there will be a great earthquake in the land of Israel. The fish of the sea, the birds of the heavens, the beasts of the field, all creeping things that creep on the ground, the humans upon the face of the earth will shake in my presence. The mountains will be thrown down, the steep places will fall. Every wall will fall to the ground. Now, here's the here's now here's the divergence. That actually kind of describes the scene before Jesus returns. Okay, and I admit that freely. I'm not saying I understand this perfectly, but to me, this is why these two conflicts are similar in many ways. Okay, because I think you're seeing something similar happen again. In this conflict, if it's not the first time, it's the second. I will call a sword against him throughout all my mountains. So it's talking about Israel. Every man's sword will be against his brother, and I will punish him with pestilence and blood. I will pour out rain on him, on his troops, and many peoples with him, a torrential rain with hailstones, fire, and brimstone. So I will magnify and sanctify myself, and make myself known in the eyes of many nations. So interestingly enough, the Bible does say Armageddon has the same situation. They've got all sorts of pestilence and things going on, the bull's wrath, and um, ultimate, ultimately saying there is huge hailstones involved, which is just, you know, storms. Let's just put it that way. Um, so you have a similar scene in Ezekiel 38 as you do with, with the, you know, with the uh, Battle of, of, of Armageddon. But there's some distinctions again. Are, do you take the restoration of Israel now to be talking about unwalled villages and uh, safety and peace and no bars, no gates, nothing like that? Is that the situation now? No, no. So we'll keep going. Verse 30, or Chapter 39. You son of man prophesy against Gog and say, Thus saith the Lord, Behold, I'm against you, Gog, chief prince of Meshach and Tubal. I will turn you around and drive you along and lead you up from the extreme north, and I will bring you upon the mountains of Israel. Then I will strike your bow from your left hand and make your arrows drop from the right. You will fall on the mountains of Israel, you and all your troops and peoples that are with you. I will give you as food to all kinds of birds of prey and to the beasts of the field. You will fall on an open field, for I have spoken, says the Lord. I will send fire on Magog and those who live securely in the islands. They will know that I am the Lord. So I will make my holy name known among my people Israel. I will not let my holy name be profaned anymore. The nations will know that I am the Lord, the Holy One of Israel. So after that, there's no profaning the Lord's name, plain and simple. So that lends credence to the fact that this might be after the millennium, because after this, this is it. There's nothing more. This is the culmination of things. Behold, it is coming when it is done. It is the declaration of the Lord. This is the day that I have spoken about. The inhabitants of Israel cities will go out and kindle fires with the weapons, shields, breastplates, bows, arrows, war clubs, spears. And they will make fires with them for seven years. They will not take wood out of the field nor cut anything from the forest, for they will make fire from the weapons. They will plunder those who plundered them and loot those who looted them. 
On that day, I will give Gog a burial place there in Israel, in the valley of the travelers east of the sea. It will block those who travel through, since they will bury Gog and his multitude there. Then they will call it the valley of Haman Gog. The house of Israel will bury them for seven months in order to cleanse the land. It takes seven months. Some people say, well, that sounds nuclear. It could be. It could be, but it doesn't seem to me. It just seems like it's a big deal. It takes seven months to clean it up. And then it says, all the people of the land will bury them. It will be a memorial for them, a day when I am glorified. Men will continually set apart to travel through the land and bury them travelers remaining on the face of the land in order to cleanse it. At the end of seven months, they will make an end, uh, or they will make uh, seven months. At the end of seven months, they will make their search. <coughs> Excuse me. When they travel through the land, if anyone sees a man's bones, he will set a sign by it until the buriers have buried it in the valley of Haman Gog. Hamana uh, will also be the name of the city. They will also, and so they will cleanse the land. You son of man, this say, you son of man says, uh, thus saith the Lord, to say to every kind of bird and to every beast of the field, assemble, come and gather from all around to my sacrificial feast that I prepared for you, a great sacrifice in the mountains of Israel. You eat flesh and drink blood. So again, this is um, referenced in Revelation. Let me just open that quickly. Um, I'm trying to remember exactly here in just a second. You have this re re uh, revelation for the, the feast. I believe it's in verse 18. Let me just look here. Let's see. Uh, it's in chapter 16, I believe. Harmus Hill. in heaven right Revelation 19 talks about the writing and all the birds gorge themselves on their flesh so there seems to be again a con like oh well maybe this is this thing and this is the problem with these it could go both ways and this is why even people who believe Gog Magog is preceding the Lord's return says that a form of it is happening after okay but the, the question is which is the ultimate Gog Magog that's the great question um, <clears throat> you will eat the flesh of mighty men, drink the blood of the princes of the earth, as rams, lambs, goats, bulls, all of them, fatlings of Bashan. So you will eat fat until you are gorged, and you will drink blood until you are drunk. From my sacrificial feast that I prepared, you will be filled up my table with horses and horsemen, with mighty men and warriors, a decoration of the Lord. I will put my glory among the nations. All the nations will see my judgment that I will execute in my hand that I will lay on them. The house of Israel will know that I am the Lord their God from that day onward. So you'd think, um, you know, again, this is this time that it's like, well, is this Armageddon or is this not? It's again, it's just, it's just, it's fuzzy. It is. It is a fuzzy issue. The house of Israel will know that I am the Lord their God from that day onward. In other words, there will be no more questions after that time. The nations will know that the house of Israel went into exile for their iniquity because they broke faith with me. So I hid my face from them and gave them into the hand of their enemies. All of them fell by the sword. I dealt with them according to their uncleanness and their transgression. I hid my face from them. Therefore, thus saith the Lord, I, now I will restore Jacob from exile when I have compassion on the whole house of Israel. I will be zealous for my holy name. They will bear their shame and, they will, their, and um, all their disloyalty by which they broke faith with me when they were living securely in their land with no one making them afraid. When I have brought them back from the peoples and have gathered them out of their enemies' lands, I will be sanctified in their eyes, uh, in the eyes of many nations, when they will know that I am the Lord. Since it is I who caused them to go into exile among the nations and it is I who gathered them back in their land, I will never again leave them there. I will never again hide my face from them, for I have poured out my spirit upon the house of Israel. So, God is going to restore Israel at this as well. Now, Revelation kind of alludes to that. And here's the interesting thing. So, this is where it makes it difficult. Uh, because, okay, that God restoring Israel. Well, Revelation presents that a little bit differently, but it is speaking a similar context. You have a thousand years, you have the def defeat of Satan, then you have a great judgment. And after the great judgment, what you see is New Jerusalem. And it's New Jerusalem prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And talking about the tabernacling of God with men and the sanctification of that and God coming together with them and 
you know, it's talking about the bride, the wife of the lamb and, and to me, and then it's carried me into the mountain, showed me the holy city, Jerusalem coming down out of heaven. There's a clear connection here then with the end of Ezekiel and the end of Revelation and this dialogue. So that, that is the complexity with Gog Magog. It seems to be speaking of both conflicts in some senses. In, in some sense, it clearly goes with the first conflict. In some senses, it goes with the second conflict. So the quest, I guess the question we have to ask ourselves, is this a dualistic conflict? And the answer to most people is it does seem to be so. But Armageddon seems to be a distinction because it is, it is um, the thing that brings the Lord back and puts an end to the destruction of Israel. And then there's a season of respite given to the earth. And then there's a final conflict in which, which the final part of the Ezekiel prophecy seems to, um, seems to come to pass. And then after that, uh, in 40, you then see this is in a later date. He's given a vision. So we can't take this as chronologically. Some people immediately want to think, okay, well, that vision, all these visions are chronological. No, he just simply has another vision in which he sees the Messianic temple. Um, doesn't seem to be eternal temple because Revelation says there's no temple in it. So obviously this is the Messianic temple based on our understanding. So you have this kind of parallel. It's a parallel to Armageddon. I mean, Armageddon seems to have some of the same aspects, but according to the Daniel account, it's not as dramatic as the Gog Magog. Now we're going to go to the book of Daniel and you'll see a different angle of the same conflict. Now, Daniel 8 describes the vision of the ram and goat. Traditional views that this has already been fulfilled. Personally, I don't think so because it does say it pertains to the time of the end. But it's, I believe it's just establishing the start of the sequence. In other words, there's a conflict that kind of brings this scenario into play. And I think this is kind of like that first sequence, if you will. And then you have, and I believe it's a, it's a parallel. I think the final, se- the final empire is a parallel of the Grecian Empire. It's actually a revival, if you will, of the Grecian Empire to a degree. And I might be weird for thinking that, but there's enough in the Bible talking about the sons of Greece being coming under judgment, and then it talks about those from Yavon and all that stuff, that Yavon is going to play an important part. And it doesn't describe them as Islamic. It describes them as as kind of Greeks, as kind of uh, walking in the footsteps of Alexander. So it's to me, there's a parallel there. If, if Antiochus Epiphanes is a parallel to the Antichrist, I do believe Alexander the Great is also uh, a parallel to the final scenario, the final, um, the final uh, government or whatever you want to call it that arises out and brings in this final sequence of, uh, of events. That may be unusual for you to think about, but as I've studied it, I've kind of come to that type of conclusion. What we're dealing with is a revived empire of some sort. And it's hard for us to remember that just 100 years ago, the world map was entirely different than it is today. So in a 100-year time span, what we know as America and the countries around the world could be completely different. 100 years ago, they were. 200 years ago, almost not recognizable. 300 years ago, beyond recognition. So... The end of the day is within a few hundred years, and this could go another few hundred years. In it, within a few hundred years, the world may be a very different place, and there might, might very well be a revived Roman Empire or a revived Greek Empire to degree. There might very well be that. We don't know. If we're expecting him to come back in our days, I would say probably the best bet is some kind of an Islamic uh, situation. But I don't expect him to do that. I still think we've got some time to go. So that's an important distinction. Okay, I think it's very important to understand uh, that we, we, we can't just apply today's geography to the prophecies. We have to allow them to fit within the time frame. We're not in that time frame. Once we're in that time frame, this will 100% make sense. It's not going to be like, oh, what's it trying to say here? All right, so Daniel chapter 11 talks about this next sequence. And I just want to draw the distinction between this sequence 
and the sequence that we read in Ezekiel. Ezekiel is a very quick, all-encompassing battle. He pulls him down, people gather, and there's a final, very concise conflict in which God is sanctified in the eyes of the people. Well, Daniel, and which is the source of the Olivet Discourse dialogue of wars and rumors of wars, paints a different picture. He doesn't paint a, a uh, final conflict. He paints a series of conflicts, a very identifiable series of conflicts. And we're going to read through the chapters, and then we'll walk through the, the sequence of events. In the first year of Darius the Mede, I, um, I took my stand to support and protect him. Now I will declare the truth. Behold, three more kings will arise from Persia. Then a fourth will be far richer than all. When he becomes powerful through his wealth, he will stir up everyone against the realm of Greece. So again, I'm talking Greece here, or Yavan. I'm talking, this is why I kind of believe there is some kind of a resurrection of the ancient Grecian empire of some sort, maybe. I, I don't know. It's, it's interesting, but this is what it seems to say. And if we're going to put this all future, which I think is probably the proper way to do it, then we have to understand that this is going to be part of that. Then a mighty king will arise who will rule with great authority and do as he pleases. But as soon as he has arisen, his kingdom will be broken up and distributed to the four winds of heaven. Now, many say, well, that's a parallel of Alexander the Great. It is, but that could be repeated. There could be another king who does the same thing. If Antiochus Epiphanes, again, is the type of the Antichrist, then very kings of the past could be types of future kings as well. I don't know. I would tend to think that way. Though it will not go to his descendants, nor will it have the authority he exercised, for his kingdom will be uprooted and given to others besides these which is actually what happened to the ancient Grecian Empire. But, and there is a similarity of events that happened, but it didn't culminate in the, in the coming of the Lord. So it isn't the same. It's similar, gives us a pattern, gives us a, a template, but it's not the exact event. Then the king of the south will become strong, but one of his commanders will become even stronger than he, and he will rule a greater kingdom than his. After some years, they will form an alliance. Okay, so this is important distinction. King of the north, uh, or the king of Greece, and then you're looking at the king of the south. Okay, so there's these two uh, kingdoms, if you will, that ultimately form the, two, form the two kingdoms that will be fighting each other in the last days before Jesus' return, which is a little different than Gog Magog. Gog Magog is a stirring up of the nations, bring them all together, final conflict. This is actually between these two kings. But the king of the south will become strong, but one of his commanders will become even stronger than he, and he will rule the, a, king, a greater kingdom than his. After some years, they will form an alliance. The daughter of the king of the south will approach the king of the north to make an agreement. Okay, so there's an alliance that is formed between the king of the south uh, and the king of the north to make an agreement. So this is a marriage alliance, typical stuff. But she will not retain her position of power, nor will his strength endure. Instead, she will be given up together with her escort, her father, and the one who supported her in those times. But another shoot from her roots will arise in his place. So, offspring. And he will come against the army of the king of the north and enter his fortress, and he will fight against them and prevail. So, um, king of the south... And fighting and prevailing. He will also carry off gods into captivity of Egypt, along with their metal images and their precious articles of silver and gold. For a few years, he will stay away from the king of the north. Then the king of the north will invade the realm of the king of the south. Okay, so there's this back and forth thing going on. But he will retreat to his own land. His sons will prepare for war and assemble a green army, which will advance and overflow and sweep through like a flood, carry the battle as far as the fortress. Then the king of the south in rage will march out and fight against the king of the north, who will muster a massive army, but the army will be defeated. But when the army is carried off, the heart of the king of the south will become arrogant and slaughter thousands and thousands, and yet he will not prevail. The king of the north will raise up another army, one greater than the first. After an interval of some years, he will advance with the great army and abundant supplies. So we're, we're talking some regional conflict here. In those times, many will rise up against the king of the south. The lawless sons among their own people will raise themselves up in order to confirm the vision, but they will stumble. Then the king of the north will come, build a siege ramp, capture a well-fortified city. The forces of the south will not prevail. Not even their select troops will have the strength to prevail. But the invader will do as he pleases, and no one will be able to stand against him. He will take his stand in the beautiful land, and its devastation, and its devastation is his hand." 
So devastation. Remember when I talked about Ezekiel, talking about security and peace? Okay, that's a very different situation than what we're reading here in Daniel. His intention will become with his strength of his uh, his intention will to will be to come with the strength of his entire kingdom, but he will reach an agreement with him, and he will give a daughter in marriage in order to destroy the kingdom, but his plans will not succeed. So this is talking about um, this king and, and this marriage, and he's hoping it's going to have some kind of effect, and it doesn't work. Then he will turn his attention to the coastlands and capture many, but a commander will put an end to his insolence and pay him back for his in, for his insolence. So it's a general. One of his commanders is, is uh, causing trouble. He will then turn his face towards the strongholds of his own land, which means he'll turn back, but he will stumble and fall, not to be found again. In his place will arise one who will dispatch a tax collector to extract tribute for royal glory, but within a few days he will be destroyed, though not in anger or battle. So, interestingly enough, there's somebody who arises and is almost instantly put to death after he wants to collect taxes. Then in his place will arise a despicable person, on whom royal honor was not has not been confirmed. He will come in a time of tranquility and seize the kingdom through intrigue. This is just interesting stuff. Armies will be utterly swept away from before him and will be broken, as well as the leader of the covenant. After an alliance is made with him, he will act deceitfully. He will arise, he will rise to power with a small force. Without warning, he will invade the richest province and accomplish, accomplish what his fathers or predecessors were unable to do. He will lavish on them plunder, loot, and spoils. He will plot to overthrow the strongholds, though only for a while. He will summon in strength and courage against the king of the south of the great army. Again, we're talking about the king of the north here. Um, or by the fourth king of the north. The king of the south will wage war with a very large army, but he will not succeed because of plots devised against him. In other words, he's weakened by his own people. Those who eat his delicacies will destroy him, and his army will be swept away. Many will be slain in battle. These two kings, with their hearts bent on evil, will sit at the same table and speak lies, but to no avail. For the end will still come at the appointed time. The king of the north will return to his own land with great wealth, but his heart will be set against the holy covenant, and he will take action and then return to his own land. At the appointed time, he will invade the south again. Only this time, the outcome will not be as before. The ships of Katim will come against him, which is Cyprus, and he will lose heart, and then he will turn back and vent his rage against the holy covenant. When he returns, he will favor those who forsake the holy covenant. His forces will rise up and profane the fortified temple. They will stop the daily offering and set up the abomination of desolation, which in Matthew 24 is the key marker. With smooth words, he will seduce those who act wickedly against the covenant, but the people who know their God will stand strong and prevail. Those who are wise among the people will instruct many, though for many days they will fall by the sword. In other words, there's going to be a revival movement, even though it, it will kill them, or be burned, captured, and pillaged. That's what Daniel 33 says there. That when they stumble, they will receive a little help, but many will join them deceitfully. Even some of the wise will stumble, so that they may be refined, purified, and made spotless until the time of the end, for it will still come at the appointed time. So the king will do as he pleases, exalting and magnifying himself above every god. Interesting note. He will speak outrageous things against the God of gods, which is Israel's God. He will prosper until the time of wrath is completed. Interesting. So Nerud got this reference to wrath, which Revelation talks about the bulls of wrath. For what has been decided will be done. He will show no regard for the gods of his fathers or the one, or one, or the one desired by women, nor will he show regard for any god, but will exalt himself above all. Instead of these, he will honor a god of fortresses, a god his fathers did not acknowledge. He will will honor with gold, silver, precious stones, and costly things. He will attack strong fortresses and help with the help of a foreign god and will greatly honor those who acknowledge him. He will give them authority over many and he will parcel out land for a price. Now at the time of the end, the king of the south will attack him. So the king of the south is obviously not suppressed here. This is at the end. The king of the north will storm out against him with chariots, horsemen, many ships, and he will invade lands and pass through them like an overflowing river. He will also invade the beautiful land. Many will be overthrown, but these will escape from his hand, Edom, Moab, and the chief sons of Ammon. He will extend his hand against other countries. The land of Egypt will not escape. He will gain control over the hidden treasure of gold and silver as well as all the riches of Egypt. The Libyans and the Cushites will also be under his feet. 
But reports from the east will alarm him. This is, I think, the rumors of war that uh, Jesus was referring to. And he will set out in a great rage to destroy and annihilate many. He will pitch his royal tents between the seas, uh, the sea and the beautiful holy mountain, which is Jerusalem. So he's down in the Shephelah uh, of Israel. Yet he will meet his doom with no one to help him. And at that time, Michael, the great prince who stands guard over the sons of your people, will arise. And there, and there will be a time of distress such as never occurred since the beginning of the nation until then. But at that time, your people, everyone who is found written in the book, will be delivered. Multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, some to everlasting life and others to shame and everlasting contempt. Those who are wise will shine like the brightness of the heavenly expanse, and those who turn... Many to righteousness will be like the stars forever and ever. But you, Daniel, close up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. Many will row to, run back and forth, and knowledge will increase. Then I, Daniel, looked, and behold, two others stood there, one on the bank of the river, and one on the other bank of the river. One said to the man clothed in linen who was above the waters of the river, How long until the end of the wondrous things? Then I heard a man clothed in linen who was above the waters, and he raised both his hands right and left towards heaven and swore by an oath who lives forever, saying this for a time, times, and a half. Then the breaking of the power of the holy people comes to an end. All these things will be finished. So basically, this is speaking about a time of trial that will be three and a half years um, in the days of this final king. Okay, And if you look at the sequence, starting in the beginning... What you have is you have the first king in the north and the first king in the south. Um, and there's a marriage alliance that takes place. And the son of the daughter defeats the king of the north. So the king of the south actually makes the first move. And there's a battle. And he takes the spoil to Egypt. That's uh, verse 11. Um, after that, this is Daniel 11 verse 9. The second king of the north, this is the son of the, the first king's army, goes south and attacks and has a dramatic loss. Uh, north attacks, sorry, the south has a dramatic loss, but the south then attacks back. And that's the end of that. The second king of the north, which is the son's army of the first, raises another one, and this is a really strong army. And verse 14 says that many will join him. He moves south, even violent men of Israel will join him, but, but fail. And there's a defining battle against the fortified city. And the conclusion of this is an agreement um, that has a malicious marriage, and it doesn't really work as planned. And then you have, after this, you have the king of the north going out and conquering coastal lands. But then a commander causes problems for him, and it causes him to turn back. And as he's on his return, verse 19 says that he perishes. And then you have the third ruler after a tax law perishing very quickly. And then you have the fourth one. The fourth one is a politician. He's not a royal. He comes to power. Armies are uh, swept away in front of him. He, he first takes regional power. Uh, he takes a region. Obviously, his, his must have had his father or something must have tried to do something, uh, take a region and couldn't have it done because he got it. And then he raises, you know, he starts forming alliances, whatever. He raises another army after the initial sweeping things that he does, and then he goes south and attacks the king of the south. And after that attack, the king of the south loses because of his own people's plots, and after that, peace talks, um, they both lie to each other, which doesn't make much of a difference anyway. And then he returns home unhappy with the agreement. He, it says he's against the holy covenant, whatever that means. After that, he attacks again. You have the king of the south, and the ships of uh, Cyprus somehow intervene and cause him to, um, to turn in. And something with that causes him and triggers him, and he stops the offerings and sets up the abomination of desolation at that time. There's still a lot of conflict left. Next, he goes out, and he kind of goes against the people of the covenant, if you will. He seduces the Jewish people with smooth words. He notices those who don't like the Holy Covenant, and the people who know their God stand their ground. There seems to be an underground resistance um, through teaching. Faithful people are killed, burned, and pillaged, and this persecution, persecution causes, causes the purification of the wise. 
And then you have, um, he will be in power until the wrath. Um, he will have free reign in the area. Instead of any other god, he will honor a god of fortresses. And he will uh, sell land for a price to rulers and religious allies. He gains some religious allies and attacks fortresses. And after that, there's another conflict where the king of the south attacks, and the king of the north attacks back with mighty weapons. And after that, he attacks the king of the south again and takes the treasures of Egypt. And after that, final conflict where he takes the treasures of Egypt, he sets up headquarters between Jerusalem and the Mediterranean, and then news from the east causes him to rage. And he will meet his end with no one to help him. So the final conflict is basically some news of the east that makes him mad, and shortly thereafter, God destroys him. And that's a very different picture than Ezekiel 38, which describes a gathering of the nations together against Jerusalem to destroy the city, versus all these string of conflicts. And at the end, it doesn't describe nations coming out. It just says news from the east, uh, the east and the north cause him to rage. Some people say, well, that's the gathering of the armies. Well, it could be. And it could be, and it probably is something to do with that. But Ezekiel doesn't describe that kind of a scenario. It doesn't describe the leader coming and pillaging Jerusalem for a couple of years. And in fact, it describes the opposite. There is um, tranquility, and there's peace, and you know, there's a restoration of Israel to a degree in that time frame. So that is why it stands in contrast, because what they're describing, Ezekiel describes, is just not quite what Daniel describes. And, and, and Ezekiel is kind of in between Revelation and um, Daniel's descriptions of the end times. So it, it, they don't conflict each other, but they bring clarity to the issue. And I think, just in conclusion, these are my thoughts. I would hold two of you at this point that Gog Magog is where Revelation puts it, that is after the thousand years. I think John did that so that we could understand where that is in the light of things, but also that there is going to be a time of tranquility, as Ezekiel 38 says, verse 8, and that Israel will be restored, and that is in this millennium period. There is a time of tranquility, but it will ultimately come to an end, and not only Jesus, okay, who is the agent, but the Father ultimately will be vindicated in the eyes of the people. And that is actually what Revelation depicts. Revelation depicts the great judgment by the Father after the battle of Gog Magog. So to me, I do believe that there is a distinction that Gog Magog is after. And I know there are some challenges with that because there are similarities to Armageddon. But again, Armageddon is not Gog Magog, and Gog Magog is not Armageddon. There are similarities to both conflicts. They reflect each other fairly well. But as I understand it, um, you're dealing with two different conflicts. So there you have my take on a very difficult subject, and I might do some more episodes on this one, but this gives you a rundown of some of the things. Hopefully I have not confused it too badly. So God bless, and until next time, shalom.